Some of you may have heard about the escape of Inky the Octopus on radio. Last week, Scott Simon on NPR began by cryptically saying, Inky is out. Then he explained. Inky, an octopus who is about the size of a basketball and of undetermined age, has landed out of his tank at the National Aquarium of New Zealand and is at large somewhere in Hawke's Bay on the east coast of New Zealand's North Island. He went on. Near as experts can figure from his splotchy tracks, Inky squeezed through a slight gap at the top of his tank, flopped to the floor, then slithered about eight feet overland to slide down a drain pipe more than 160 feet long, and finally to plop into the bay. He managed to make his way to one of the drain holes that go back to the ocean. And off he went. The story continued. Marine biologists who know their octopuses well were not surprised. Alex Harvey, an aquarist at Britain's Marine Biological Association, told the New York Times, octopuses are fantastic escape artists. They have also been known to open jars. I've actually seen this done on YouTube from the inside out. And they use coconut shells to build shelters on the ocean floor. Harvey went on. They have a complex brain, excellent eyesight, and research suggests they have an ability to learn and form mental maps. Scott Simon concluded, we should be careful not to project human traits onto octopuses. But it's hard not to note that Inky chose to bolt from surroundings in which he was safe, secure, and hand-fed. For the dangers of an open sea that teams with sharks, seals, and whales that might eat him, Inky chose liberty over security. And when you hear that Inky and octopuses have the brains to plot Steve McQueenish escapes, build coconut shell edifices, and form mental maps, for me at least, he says, Scott Simon says, it gets a little harder to think of them being grilled and served for dinner. Please note, I did not bring up the story of Inky to illustrate our first lesson. As you recall, the story from the Acts of the Apostles is about God giving Peter permission to eat a vast array of the animals of the earth. But opening dietary restrictions is not the actual point of that lesson. Rather, it is a story about God's acceptance of Gentiles into the new faith that had been previously bound by Jewish laws of food purity. It is a story of the church opening its doors and spreading its good news to people formerly viewed as unclean. The reason I brought you the story of Inky is because last Friday was Earth Day a day to celebrate the great diversity of creation and to recall our stewardship of this earth. And it was a historic Earth Day as well because 171 countries signed an agreement at the United Nations headquarters in New York City to limit climate change. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said the agreement will, 
shape the lives of all future generations in a profound way. It is their future that is at stake. It was an emotional event for many. Secretary of State John Kerry held his small granddaughter as he signed his name. The 20th century writer Henry Beston provides us with a different images, different image of the animals of creation. 2,000 years after Peter had his vision of the animals lowered in a sheet, Beston saw the animals caught in a net we share. His understanding may speak more clearly to Christians with concern for this endangered planet. He wrote, We need another and a wiser and perhaps a more mystical concept of animals. We patronize them for their incompleteness, for their tragic fate of having taken a form so far below ourselves. And therein do we err. For the animal shall not be measured by humankind. In a world older and more complete than ours, they move finished and complete gifted with the extension of the senses we have lost or never attained, living by voices we shall never hear. They are not brethren. They are not underlings. They are other nations caught with ourselves in the net of life and time, fellow prisoners of the splendor and travail of the earth. The psalm appointed for this Sunday, Psalm 148, is a hymn of praise to God with all of creation sharing in the singing. It's a celebratory poem for all of life. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and fog, tempestuous wind doing his will, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged birds, kings of the earth and all people, princes, rulers of the world, young men and maidens, old and young together, let them praise the name of the Lord. It's an exultant hymn of praise with every aspect of the earth joining in, and it seemed especially meaningful to hear it this Sunday when we're keenly aware that the planet is in trouble and it is our collective human doing. Species of animals are becoming extinct, glaciers are melting, oceans are rising, and the burden of change is falling hardest on the most vulnerable of people, creatures, and plant life. Ellen Davis, professor of Bible and practical theology at Duke Divinity School, said, One day, in the fullness of time, all of creation will be given its voice. And we will be called to sit down at table and listen, really listen, and hear the pain we have caused. Do you think that any of us who have been entrusted with this utterly beautiful planet, especially so this April, could bear to hear the voice of the ocean with her coral reefs dying? The cries of the great animals of Africa and Asia hunted to extinction. And the questions of the 5,000 poor children who die daily simply from want of clean water. 
Five years ago, the House of Bishops of the Episcopal Church issued a pastoral letter on the environment. They said Christians cannot be indifferent to global warming, pollution, natural resource depletion, species extinction, and habitat destruction, all of which threaten life on our planet. They went on to quote the Anglican Communion Environmental Network, which warned, we know that we are now demanding more than the earth is able to provide. Science confirms what we already know. Our human footprint is changing the face of the earth. And because we come from the earth, it is changing us too. We are engaged in the process of destroying our very being. If we cannot live in harmony with the earth, we will not live in harmony with one another. They urged us all to act now with these words. This is the appointed time for all God's children to work for the common goal of renewing the earth as a hospitable abode for the flourishing of all life. We are called to speak and act on behalf of God's good creation. Our former presiding bishop, Catherine Jefford Shorey, is also a scientist, an oceanographer by training. And she said, we were planted in this garden to care for it, literally to have dominion over its creatures. Dominion means caring for our island home. And we don't have another one. Our second lesson for today from the revelation of St. John the Divine gives us an image of a new heaven and a new earth. It's a longing that have been with human beings since the earliest days. Some of you might remember the Joni Mitchell song, Woodstock, where she says, we are starlight, we are golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Maybe you can remember John Lennon's song, crying for all of us to imagine a peaceful world. While many today might wish we had a spare planet so we could get it right, it's important to note that the visionary who beheld the new heaven and earth in today's reading did not behold the new heaven and earth bestowed because we had destroyed the current world, but rather it came as a result of the indwelling of God with the people of God. Christ coming among us and his rising from death makes it possible. But any new heaven and earth is still ultimately in our hands. In our gospel lesson from John's gospel, Jesus gives us a new commandment. He tells us to love one another. He says, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. We may wonder why Jesus described the commandment as new. Clearly, love was not absent from the first century understanding of Judaism. What then made it new? It seems the newness was in the manner in which Jesus' followers were to love one another. It was to be as Jesus loved them. Of what then does that love consist? It would seem that it's based on four components. Telling the truth, 
sharing the word of God, acting on behalf of others, even if they're not responsive, and if necessary, giving up one's life. This love is more than just a feeling. It is speaking and doing and being for others. And as such, it is a commandment. Catherine Jefford Shorey also said, We are meant to love God and what God has created and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus insists that those who will enjoy abundant life are those who care for their neighbors, especially the least of these, the hungry and thirsty, the imprisoned and sick, and that must include all the species that God has nurtured on this planet. Thomas Traherne, a 17th century English cleric, poet, and mystic, understood the relationship between loving God, loving one's neighbor, and loving the earth. He wrote, You never enjoy the world aright till the sea itself flows in your veins, till you are clothed with the heavens and crowned with the stars and perceive yourself to be the sole heir of the whole world, and more than so because others are in it who are every one, sole heirs as well as you, till you can sing and rejoice and delight in God as misers do in gold and kings in scepters. You never enjoy the world. Till your spirit fills the whole world and the stars are your jewels. Till you are as familiar with the ways of God in all ages as with your walk and table. Till you are intimately acquainted with that shady nothing out of which the world was made. Till you love others so as to desire their happiness with a thirst equal to the zeal for your own. Till you delight in God for being good to all, you never enjoy the world. The environmental crisis is one that has fueled many religious leaders. Pope Francis's encyclical last year on the environment was titled Laudato Si, which means praise be to you, and the title is from St. Francis's Canticle to the Sun. It's an unusual encyclical because it is addressed not only to cardinals and bishops, nor to just Roman Catholics, but to all people on this planet who share our common home. Like our former presiding bishop, Pope Francis, too, is a scientist and believes that faith and science can have a fruitful dialogue. There are a number of significant things that the Pope says in the encyclical, but five key points jumped out to me. First of all, climate change has grave implications. The Pope writes, each year sees the disappearance of thousands of plant and animal species which we will never know, which our children will never see, because they have been lost forever. A second point is that rich countries are destroying poor ones, and the earth is getting warmer. He explains, the warming caused by huge consumption on the part of some rich countries has repercussions on the poorest areas of the world, especially Africa, where a rise in temperature, together with drought, 
has proved devastating for farming. His third point, Christians have misinterpreted scripture. And the Pope says we must forcefully reject the notion that our being created in God's image and being given dominion over the earth justifies absolute domination over other creatures. The fourth point I I wanted to bring you is the importance of access to safe, drinkable water, which the Pope describes as a basic and universal human right. Finally, he says, technocratic domination leads to the destruction of nature and the exploitation of people. And he says, and I quote, by itself, the market cannot guarantee integral human development and social inclusion. These words of warning may lead us to think the problem is insurmountable, but we can all do something toward helping. Today you may have noticed that we're using a different program here at St. Luke's. We're moving towards seasonal booklets in an effort to save paper, which will work to save trees, as well as printer um, ink. It's a small thing, but small things add up and make a difference, and it is a beginning. And Harvard ecologist E.O. Wilson believes people of faith can make a significant difference in another way. He uses the term biophilia to describe his understanding that human beings are hardwired to love life. But he has observed that many people today are separated from that internal connection with creation. And healing that separation will be a crucial part of moving toward a sustainable lifestyle and economy. He believes that religious faith can help people find their connection back into loving creation. And so today, I hope you will take some time to love this earth and love others and love yourself because Jesus has commanded you to do it and because it will help to heal the earth. I'll conclude with a poem by Mary Oliver, a wonderful nature poet, in which she ponders some everyday creatures and their relationship with God. It's titled, I Happened to be Standing. I don't know where prayers go or what they do. Do cats pray while they sleep, half asleep in the sun? Does the opossum pray as it crosses the street? The sunflowers, the old black oak growing older every year. I know I can walk through the world along the shore or under the trees with my mind filled with things of little importance in full self-attendance, a condition I can't really call being alive. Is prayer a gift or a petition or does it matter? The sunflowers blaze, maybe that's their way. Maybe the cats are sound asleep, maybe not. While I was thinking this, I happened to be standing just outside my door with my notebook open, which is the way I begin each morning. 
Then a wren in the privet began to sing. He was positively drenched in enthusiasm. I don't know why, and yet, why not? I wouldn't persuade you from whatever you believe or whatever you don't. That's your business. But I thought of the wren singing. What could this be if it isn't a prayer? So I just listened, my pen in the air. Amen.